know, it's one of the characteristics that we, we've, I think we value in the West is this idea of, of humility. Uh, you know, when we think about our, our leaders, particularly our political class, you know, we, we like to think that there's some humility about them, some sense that, um, you know, that they don't know everything, they don't pretend to know everything, that they, you know, even ideally can even own up to their mistakes and, and just be honest about that. Um, and I think even just in the sense of leadership training, you know, there's this sort of idea that within leadership, we, we need to have a bit of humility. We need to know, you know, where our weaknesses are um, and, and to be able to, you know, draw on people that have those strengths, um, you know, building this sort of leadership models of building teams and surrounding ourselves with people that complement where we're not so strong and, and really just sort of having this understanding of, of ourselves, understanding our, our limitations, understanding our weaknesses and being okay with that. And that's the big point, being okay with the fact that, you know, we're not perfect, that we're not the ideal. Um, and I think along with that, I think there's sort of this other, the, the more negative element of this, I think particularly in, in, in Australia, I mean, I don't know where you're, you're listening from right now, but I think certainly in a, in a place like Australia, we have a real sort of tall poppy syndrome here where, um, you know, if somebody does have success, you know, if somebody is having, uh, if they're doing really well, there's this, um, you know, that you want to bring them down a few notches. You know, it's a bit of a silly example. My, the football team that I follow, the Penrith Panthers, um, they've just won the last three grand finals in a row. So, I mean, they've done something that really only one other team has done in the last 40 years. So it's a really historical, incredible thing that they've done. But it's so interesting over the last few years to sort of watch how much hatred there is for this team, you know, it's the, the sort of the team that you love to hate. They're the team that you want to see lose because they're just too good. Um, you know, they, they, you want, you just want them to lose. It doesn't even matter who beats them. So long as somebody beats them, because again, they're just doing too well. And so, you know, we sort of have this sense um, within our culture, this sort of tall poppy thing. And, and so we don't really like hubris. We don't really like people that are trying to fly above their station or, you know, trying to be more than they actually are. We, we like everybody sort of to be down at our level. So this there's sort of downsides to this desire after humility. It can also be, um, it can work against us in trying to uh, minimise success in others, um, particularly if if it makes us look smaller. But I think as an overall, there is this sense of value within the idea of, of humility. And, and I think it's inherent in the West. And really it is inherent in the West because as we're going to see, it, it stems from our Christian origins. Because when you look at other cultures that aren't Western cultures, um, they, they, fall, they run more along the lines of what we would call a honor shame culture. And I mean, I love history. I don't just love first century history. I love, you know, any, any time in history. Um, one time in history I'm particularly interested in is actually World War II. And there was just, you know, lots of stories that come out of that, that particular war. But one in particular that really sort of highlights this, um, this, this shock between cultures. So you know, as, as you would know, World War II, um, amongst the Axis powers, you've got sort of Germany and Italy, but also Japan. And the Japanese were largely fighting throughout the Pacific and, and down into Australia. Um, and so they were coming up against British and Australian forces. Now, the Australians and the British are typical Westerners and had only ever really fought other European powers. They hadn't really, uh, certainly in, at the time of World War II, hadn't really fought anything outside of, you know, a Western power. And so it didn't really have that sense of, um, of a different culture. There's just an assumption amongst the West that um, if you 
if, you, if it looks like you're losing, you surrender. You know, you spare your life, you surrender, you submit yourself to be a prisoner of war and you, you sort of throw yourself on the mercy of your enemy. And, and there's, a, there's a general agreement amongst those powers that that's just what you do, that you, um, that you, that you surrender and, and that everyone just sort of acknowledges that and, and that's all fine. But when the, uh, the British first uh, came into con- conflict with the Japanese forces, they just assumed that everybody was working with that same understanding. And so when the first battle, I mean, the Japanese really came across like a wave and they were really dominant throughout the Pacific for quite a few years and um, really nobody was able to stop them. Uh, and so when the British first encountered them, they just surrendered, um, seeing that they were being overwhelmed, they, they surrendered, just assuming that everybody thinks the same way and then were shocked to find that they were being slaughtered. They were actually being punished for their surrender. And over the time, what they came to realize was that in the Japanese mindset, you never surrender. It's a shame to surrender. To, to surrender to your enemy is a shame worse than death. It's a shame that you're going to bring on your family and to everyone who knows you because you don't quit. I mean, it was actually in, um, in, in sort of the, the handbook that soldiers were given, you know, their, their terms of fighting was simply you do not surrender. That is it. You die before you surrender. Even in the most overwhelming odds, you'll, you'll, you're better off to die and die with honour than to shame yourself through surrender. And so this really shocked the Western forces. They just didn't know what to do with this. They never had any sort of experience like this before. And so it took them a while to sort of come to terms with that. And that obviously carries carried through the war. And where it really um, came to be quite amazing, quite shocking to the Western forces was during the, the battles of the Pacific where uh, the American forces had now come into the war after Pearl Harbor and they were largely facing the Japanese forces in the Pacific. And so, um, you know, they're out there with their Navy and with their uh, aircraft carriers and all of their fleets. And so naturally the Japanese are trying to stop them. They're trying to attack and destroy the uh, the American naval fleets that are coming towards them. And so after a while, you know, you, you can bomb a ship so many times and, it you know, it's they're pretty robust. They can handle a bit of bombing. Um, but what eventually happened was the some of the Japanese pilots began to just to fly their planes directly into the ships not um, you know with no intention to pull out they were flying suicide missions as you know kamikaze missions to simply destroy these ships um, and take their own life in doing it and so by the end of the war the Japanese were actually not even building normal aeroplanes anymore. They were just building rockets. They were literally just building rockets that you wouldn't, you know, think. imagine a rocket that you fire into an enemy territory to destroy it. They were building those strapping wings on them, putting a pilot in, they're saying, off you go. And you fly this thing into the biggest target you can possibly find. And it was shocking to the Americans, particularly when they started to see these planes coming at them and, and not, you know, you, you come into a, for a, a bombing dive and you drop your bomb and then you pull out, but they, they weren't pulling out. They were just kept coming and they kept coming. And so the Americans just didn't know what to do. They were freaking out. They'd never seen anything like this before because you don't just like, that's, that's too extreme a price to pay for this cause. Um, and so it was really quite freaking them out. There was actually quite a lot of emotional um, distress amongst the American Navy because they just like we're fighting against people who are wanting to die. They're actually signing up to die. In fact, uh, when they put a call out for kamikaze pilots, they had such an overwhelming response that they had twice as many volunteers that they actually had planes to put these guys in. Um, they were just so 
set on or so uh, excited about the opportunity to, to die for the emperor. Um, they and and also just the honor that that would bring. You know, the back to their family. And we're talking like nineteen and twenty year old guys here. I mean, these are these are kids um, who are just signing their life away because of the great honor that it would bring back to their families to be to to die for the to die for the emperor. And so again, we, we just sort of see this real clash in cultures, and it's I think sometimes as Westerners, it's hard for us to understand because again, we have this value of humility. And one of the challenges that I guess that brings for us when we're reading the New Testament is that the, the New Testament wasn't written to a Western world. The New Testament created a Western world, but it certainly wasn't written to one. It was written to a culture much like what we describe here with the Japanese culture, with this, this honor-shame culture, where your whole life is about gaining honor and shame is a fate worse than death. If you are in a situation where you are, have brought shame on yourself or your family, you, the best thing you can do is to simply kill yourself. The, the only way you can possibly restore the honor of you or the family is to kill yourself. It's as simple as that. That's, that's the only way out of this. And, and, and much like the Japanese army and their forces that, you know, you just simply don't surrender, you do not give up. The same was true for the Romans. The Roman uh, ethos of fighting was we do not surrender. And so the reason why Rome was so dominant militarily was because even when they lost, they'd go home, they would get reinforcements and they would come back and they would fight again and they would fight again. Even when they were soundly beaten and it was clear that, um, you know, they were all going to get slaughtered, they would just go, okay, we're going to come back, we're going to try this again. And most of their armies that they defeated usually took about three goes and they would just keep throwing men into this grinding mill of just, you know, just keep on getting slaughtered until we beat this enemy and just grind the enemy down because we will not give up. We, our... It is more um, it's more important for us to to die doing this than it would be to surrender and to have you beat us to ha- have that just that shame of of having been beaten by this this other army. So this is the sort of world that we're coming into. Honor and shame is really it's not just that it's an essential characteristic of the ancient world. It's really the currency of the ancient world. If if you have money in this in this type of world. You're the, you use money to buy honor. You, you will bankrupt yourself if it means gaining honor for yourself because the money is always the means to the end. The wealth is always the means to the end, which is to simply gain honor. This is just your whole life's pursuit. It's to gain honor, not just for yourself, but for your family, to carry on the, the honor of the, fam- the generations that have come before you and to then set a benchmark for your sons and their sons to carry on and to continue on uh, and, and, and re-establish and continue that, that same honour within the family. So we've been talking about this then in the context of this good man. Remember this, this via bonus, the good man. And the, the, the virtuous man or this good man is a man. And, you know, the word via means is where we get our word virtue from, which comes from virtus. It's all one and the same thing. Virtue is to be manly. It's, it's all one and the same thing. And so the way that you have to demonstrate your virtue, virtue isn't a private thing. It's not something just to be kept at home. Virtue is something you have to demonstrate in the public. You have to demonstrate it out in, in, the, in the world. And there's two main ways that you can do this as a Roman. The first way is through, uh, is through fighting. It's through the military. And so it's expected, certainly in the early days of Rome, that everybody fights for Rome. Uh, everybody is a citizen soldier. If there is a war, you take up arms and you fight. And you provide your own 
equipment. You provide your own weapons and, and whatever you can afford in terms of protective armor. But you, that's what you do. That's, and that's how you gain on for yourself. Now, you, one of the incentives of going to war, of course, is that you can gain, you can gain spoils. So you vanquish an army uh, and then you can take the spoils from wherever that was. So that could be gold, it could be slaves, it could be any number of things that you can take back from your conquest. But what you're really wanting is the honour of being part of that. You certainly don't want to be staying at home and just watching the other men go off to fight. You've got to be part of that. That's how you gain honour for yourself and for your family. And so then when you did return, you would um, play, you would sort of display all the spoils of your conquest around your house. So you walk past somebody's house and it's just decorated. It's just the, the facade of this of the house will be shields and swords and, and whatever else that you've taken in battle. Um, those are your trophies and you display them. You decorate your house with these so that everybody knows the sort of virtuous, brave, manly, courageous person that owns that particular house. So that's one key way that you do it. But the other way that you gain honor for yourself is through public service. And so you do things for the community. You do things for the people in your community. You um, you build buildings, if, if particularly if you're a wealthy person, you build public works, you build roads, you build buildings, temples, um, you support, you help the those around you that have needs. You know, this is a time before any sort of government support, there is no government support. Uh, and so if you fall on hard times, you need a wealthy person who's going to become a patron for you. And that's something a very wealthy person is happy to do, because they get the honor of being able to say, hey, look at all these people that I support. You know, I'm personally responsible for the well-being of all of these people. And in return, what those people then do is to go and sing the praises of this patron of theirs, tell everybody how wonderful this person is that is taking care of them. Uh, and so honour is, you, you, you get it through your military service, but also you get it through any sort of public service and particularly through politics. Politics is always a voluntary thing. To, to enter into the Senate is always voluntary. Now, again, as we saw, it's only for the ultra elite wealthy that can do that. But this is how you demonstrate how great you are, how virtuous you are, um, how kind and generous you are to the society by voluntarily serving their needs. Now, of course, um, you get the honor for doing that. You get the ultimate prize, which is everybody sings your praises. And, you know, to the extent that people would set up statues of you, um, busts of your head would be decorated around the place to, to remind everybody of how great this person is. So all of that in this honor, shame culture, honor is absolutely everything. It's just, it is just so essential. It's, it's, again, it's hard for us again, as Westerners to really comprehend how important honor is. Um, to the extent that any threat to it, any if there's any potential you might lose it, you really are just better off quite literally killing yourself. Um, to <laughs> Sorry to end on such an extreme point here, but, but really that's how important this is for everybody in this time. And so this good man is the ideal. Now, not everyone can, only very few people can ever become this person. They, they, you, know, you need wealth to do it. You need an education to, uh, to become this person. But this is the ideal. This is what you is set up as the benchmark for what it means to be a man, to, for what it means to be the ideal human being. Uh, and so, you know, another way to describe this would be the great man, um, this person who is who embodies all of the virtues that we hold to be important. So, you know, manliness and courage and um, and, and this sort of stoic sort of idea. This is um, this is the ideal. This is, and so if you embody this, then we hold you up as our exemplar. You're the one that we look to 
to say that's what we should all strive to be like. And if we find that person, then we need to elevate them. We need to set up inscriptions and statues in their honour um, and, and constantly keep them in front of us as a reminder of, of what it means to be the ideal person. Uh, and so one of the great examples that we have of this is, is really the Emperor Augustus. He really sort of sets the... Uh, I guess he's one of the high points of this idea of the great man. So what the Emperor Augustus was really quite good at was, was really just creating an image of himself as the ideal Roman. You know, he's, he's the first emperor of Rome and he's really, he, he's coming as an emperor in a, in a Roman world that never wanted an emperor. And so he's got to sort of establish himself um, in, in a culture that is actually anti emperor anti any sort of monarchy they they never wanted this in the first place um but when you know it got to a stage where they realized it was the only choice they had was to um, have him sort of take full control of, of rome and so what he tried to do was to embody in himself the the very values of what it means to be roman um, and so he sort of tried to set up this image of himself um as being this is why i'm the emperor i'm i'm, I'm virtually god appointed um, the gods have appointed me into this role because of um, just the sort of person that I am. And at the end of his life, just to really reinforce his honor and really reinforce the memory and, and establish his legacy, what he actually had uh, written down or what he had created was a list of all of his accomplishments. Now, in the Latin, it's called the Res Gestae Divi Augusti which literally means the deeds of the divine Augustus. And it's just a list of all of his accomplishments. And the thing runs on for some 40-odd paragraphs of everything that he has achieved in his life and, and certainly in his adult life and, and as the emperor. And it just it's, it covers everything. It's his, his political career, um, he, all of his public benefactions, so all of the things that he, the, the money that he personally spent rebuilding the Roman Empire, um, all of his military accomplishments, and just a general political statement of how great he is. I mean, this is literally just sitting down with somebody and saying, I'm the greatest person there ever was. Let me tell you how great I am. Now, again, in the Western mind, we just go, oh, we balk at that. Like you, what sort of a narcissist are you? Like, I, I don't want to listen to this. It's just you, people like you are, are annoying. But in the Roman world, that's like, yeah, bring it on. That's what we want. That's tell us how good you are and we'll worship you uh, accordingly. And so this is the type of... This is the type of world that we're, we're sort of dealing with, this idea of the great man. And particularly when you remember that we're, we're, this is a very agonistic society. We've talked about this before. Um, an agonistic society, the agony, the, the word, a Greek word, agony, it's the same as our word, agony, but it means competition. It means struggle. It's, it's this constant competitiveness that you have with other people to be the best. It's expected, in fact, that you're pursuing your own personal greatness. You want to um, be the best and this, this is what you're striving after. In fact, there's a, a virtue that you can um, that can be attributed to you. It's this virtue called philotemia. So literally philos, love, temia, honor. So the love of honor. It's your, the pursuit of your own honor is in and of itself a virtue. Now, again, we call that narcissism. But for these guys, no, that's actually something we hold up. You seek after your honor to the to, the, to such an extent that in and of that in and of itself is what makes you an honorable and virtuous person. 
So it's a, it's a very competitive world. And, you know, we see this demonstrated in the Greek athletic games and the competitiveness of those, the competitiveness in war, competitiveness in politics. It's always about getting to the top. It's always about whatever the cost, however many people you have to leave in your wake, it's about getting to the top and being the winner. There's only one place in the, in the Roman world. There's first place and then there's all of the other losers who come behind you. And so then having reached the top, having become this great man, um, you know, what that brings with it is this sense of gravitas. Uh, you are, you know, literally, you, 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 there's a gravity about you. There's, there's a, a weightiness about you. It's the sort of person, you know, when you think about um, uh, the leader of an organization, a very powerful person, when they walk into the room, everybody stops. Everybody just pays attention to this person that has just come in because they hold the authority, they hold the significance in that particular context. This is what you wanted. You wanted to be able to walk through the city and have everybody get out of your way. You wanted everybody to stop and, and acknowledge that you're walking past them. And this is a great honor. It's this real celebrity status that you want to have there. And, you, you know, ideally what you have set up, are, you know, statues and inscriptions in your honor that, that testify to how important and how amazing you are. I think you get the point of, of where I'm going with all of this. And so then honor is something that is attributed to you. Now, last week we talked about rank and status and we talked about, um, you know, that you have, you hold a formal rank of being a free person or a freed person or a senator, an equestrian. These are formal ranks that you can hold. And these are something that you can achieve and having achieved them, they can't be taken from you. Once you're a senator, you're always a senator. If you're a free person, then you are a free person. Now you can become a slave, but you, by virtue of being free, you are a free person. And then within that, you've got status. You've got this, well, th there might be 600 senators, but who's the greatest of the senators? Well, somebody who's been consul. Well, you know, there might be a dozen amongst the existing senators who've been consuls. But how many maybe have been consuls twice or three times? Well, they're going to be greater than the consuls who've only been consuls once. And so even within these, these formal categories of rank, there's status as well. And this is something that you can achieve. Uh, I, I used the example last week of, of playing tennis. You, know, you can be a professional player or you can play in an open or you can win an open or you can win two opens or you can win all four or you can become a Novak Djokovic. That can never be taken away from you. You, you are the greatest, you know, the greatest player or the greatest person within that group by virtue of your achievements within that so status is, is something, it's something else. Status is something that can be achieved and that can never be taken away from you. But honor, on the other hand, honor is something that's actually given to you. You can't take it. It's something that actually has to be attributed to you by the people around you. And so where honor comes from is by everybody else acknowledging how great you are. Honor is something that is held within everybody's opinion of you. You can't, you, you, it's not something you can just earn and then hold on to. Honor is something that has to be, it has to be earned, but in the sense that you have to um, be perceived to be an honorable person. Now, an honorable person is going to be the person who embodies what we hold to be valuable. So we give honor to people who, again, are the embodiment of, the, of, of whatever it is that we hold to be truly virtuous. And so if you have those things, then you will be honored amongst your peers. And so this is where it really counts. It's about people's opinion of you. Now that's a great thing to achieve, but it's also very a very fickle thing. That can be taken away in an instant. You can become uh, dishonored and shamed overnight through one wrong move. 
um, you know, it's, it's it's sort of the idea of climbing to the top of a peak and you're standing on this tiny little, you know, tiny little peak at the top of a hill. And at that point, it's very hard to balance. You can hold yourself up there, but the slightest thing could just, just as easily knock you off. Now you are at the top. Everyone can see you. Everyone's looking up to you and going, what a great person. But just as easily as that, you could be knocked off and it would all be over. And there's no recovery from that. Once you've been shamed, as I say, there's no recovery from that. In fact, in these sorts of cultures, the best thing you can do is actually just to kill yourself and at least restore something of the dignity that you maybe used to have. In fact, I'll give you an example just in the context of this good man. So this, this you know, the good male, this, this ideal man that we're, we're describing here and that we're striving to be. One of the ways that he demonstrates his virtue is the way that he manages his household. In fact, this is one of the primary ways that he that he demonstrates his virtue is that he keeps his family in check, that his family is an honourable family, that his children uh, listen to him and they're in submission to him, and especially that his wife is uh, a humble person, that she's a um, she's quiet, that she's she's not you know out there, she's not a um, you know she's not one of these people that would be a disreputable disreputable person. Because what that means for him is that his reputation is sullied by the fact that his wife does her own thing. He's, he doesn't control her. He's, he's, not, he's, he's not controlling his household because she's off doing her thing. And so it's so extreme that if, if a woman, if a wife was to have an affair, um, if she was to have an affair with a, um, you know, and just, you know, cheat on her husband with somebody else, it would be the most shameful thing for him as a husband, but not because of his feelings, not because of, well, you know, she betrayed me and I, I loved her and, you know, she, she broke my heart and she went behind my back. No, none of that. None of these sort of modern emotional feelings that we have when we talk about loving relationships, none of that even factored into any of this. Now, no, the thing that was so devastating for him is that what's everybody going to think about me? The fact that she's done this suggests to everybody else that I can't control my wife. She's, by her doing this, that's telling the world that, well, I'm really maybe in submission to her because I've got no control over her. And that in and of itself, the disgrace that comes along with that is really the pain of it, not even necessarily what she's done and, um, and, and you know, the, the heartbreak. That's, that's just not even something that factors into this. And so then what are some of the ways that you can attain honor? Um, well, one of the key ways, again, is just to do things for your society. Uh, you know, people, the wealthiest people were ostensibly very generous to their communities. They would build infrastructure, they'd build temples and buildings and put on games and events, uh, not because they cared about the people. It's not because they felt for the people and they wanted these people to have the best. It really had nothing to do with that. There's no sense of generosity in that way. It's because they wanted the honor, the come, they, they wanted to be seen to be generous. It's not that they actually necessarily were. They've got lots of wealth. They can afford it. Uh, it. For them, this is how you buy honor. It's about people remembering. Remember that games that we had last year, Who that person that put them on? And so that person is constantly talked about, constantly remembered as being this great person by this thing that they've done. But there's other ways too. Um, associate with other people of honor. I've talked so many times before about the importance of community in this world and community is absolutely everything. It's, it's not about who you are, it's about whose you are. 
you want to be associated with the most honorable communities because it takes one to know one. If you've been accepted into that group and that's an honorable group, it must be because you're an honorable person. Otherwise, you wouldn't be there. And so you want to be in the most honorable circles. You want to be seen with the best of the best so that you have that same reputation. And what that also ensures for the group is that there's an imperative on all of its members to maintain the honor of the group as well. And so if a, if a member of the group is uh, causing dishonor to that group, then they'll be punished. They'll be fined in some cases or they'll be just completely excommunicated from the group altogether. In fact, in the Roman world, you don't have a police force. There's no need for one. You don't need police to enforce the law. The people can do that themselves. The groups will do that themselves. Families will do it. Groups will do it. If somebody in the group is breaking the law, that's a threat to the whole group. And so the group themselves is going to deal with the person. And then if that person is removed or for the person who is removed, the fact that they've been removed, the shame that that brings, the public shame that comes along with being excommunicated is a fate worse than death. You're better off dead. And so you don't want to be the person who dishonors the group and therefore is kicked out because of the shame that that's going to bring. And so it keeps everybody in line. So this honor-shame society really does keep things in check. I think particularly in the present world where there's we're very sensitive and there's very, very much a strong sort of ethos of you don't want to embarrass anybody, you don't want to shame anybody, and shaming anyone for anything is absolutely taboo. It's just you just don't even want to be perceived to be shaming somebody um but in all of these cultures and even in other cultures in today's world shame is a powerful motivating motiv motivation it's a powerful incentive to not do stupid things to not be a, a disgraceful person the shame is is the pun is a punishment that's worse than death and that's just not something you want because you want your group and your community to see you as an honorable valuable person and so the groups you associate with absolutely essential you know, and other things too. being just being a wealthy person is it's going to give you status, but it's also going to, you'll be seen to be an honorable person through that having, you know, um, the, the higher ranks, equestrian senators, all, all of those sort of sort of given by default of being in those positions, you can, you, you're an honor, you can gain honor through that. Um, through your house. Your house is absolutely, this is so important, the household, and not just the family and the people that are attached to your family, but the house itself, the, how big the house is, how luxurious the house is. Now, we're starting to get into familiar territory here. This is still a bit of a sense of this in really any world, um, but this is especially important for the ancients. And things like having an education. Education brings with it eloquence, and it especially brings with it the virtue that is required to be a virtuous person. So all of these things are the things that you strive after. And the goal of all of it, again, is to achieve honor. It's to be seen to be uh, a great person. And even if you're not a great person, this is the point. It's not even about who you really are. Um, it's just about how people perceive you to be. Now, this is when we'll come back to this actually in a moment. We'll talk about this in, a, in another context in a moment. So attaining honor is very important, but also bestowing honor. Uh, and so if you want people in your community to be generous, if you're um, the, mag the magistrate magistrates of a city and you want to encourage generous uh, people, the wealthy people in your city to be generous and to build infrastructure and buildings, then you honor them. You make inscriptions that honor them. You, um, you build statues for them. To, and what that does is that shows everybody else that 
this is the way we honor people who invest into our community. We give them the honor that they're seeking after. In fact, it was very common when, you, when, when a wealthy person would build a building, for example, the city would set up a, uh, an inscription, a plaque that basically says, you know, this building was built by the generosity of this particular person. And it would always finish with, and this is what the city does for anybody who does the same thing. In other words, we want more of this. And so we're happy to give you the honor if it means we get more stuff. So here's what we'll do for anybody else. And so it's an incentive for everybody, to, for, for those that can, to do more generous things for, that, for a society that is going to be appreciative and, and, and show that necessarily honor. Um, they, they, you know, if there was a sacrifice, there's always sacrifices with, related to the cults. The wealthy people, the, the ones who, the, the benefactors of the city would always get the best portion of the meal, of the best, the best portion of meat. They'd always get the best foods. Um, they would get the most lenient treatment in court. Um, if, you know, if you go to court and you're, in a, you're an elite person, we don't want to shame you by dragging you through this process. We want to honor you by giving you lenient punishment. And in fact, even punishing the low status person for having the audacity to bring you to court in the first place. How dare you even try to shame this elite, honorable, virtuous person? When you go to a meal, you always get the best seat. You always get the best place. You always have the seat closest to the host. So there's all these different ways that you can encourage the benefaction, the generosity of these elite people who are doing these things to gain the honor. So this is sort of reciprocal process that goes on. And this is just what makes the world go around. You know, you don't need um, public support. You don't need government support for people when you've got patrons who would quite happily feed and, and, and look after poorer people in exchange for the honor that comes along with that. So this is the type of world that we're dealing with. And again, the counter to this is shame. The counter to this is that when that honor is taken away, well, you're done. That's it. Socially, you're done. You, you are, quite honestly, you're better off dead. Now, I suppose if I was to um, bring a sort of a modern example of this, um, how this maybe plays out in, in today's world, you might think about social media. Uh, if you think about the way social media works, it works essentially on an honor shame uh, system. Um, you, people that want to do well on social media, that want to have a bigger following, need to spout whatever the most virtuous ideas are, uh, whatever is the latest ethos, whatever the the most virtuous thing. In a, not necessarily the entire society because we're incredibly divided over what we think is virtue and what is what is not virtuous, but at least amongst the people who hold something to be virtuous, you want to be seen to be the person who most loudly and the most articulately uh, spouts that idea. Um, you know, we talk about terms of echo chambers where you're just talking into a particular way of thinking and so you just keep re reinforcing this idea but you do it in such a way that people sort of look to you as, as something of an exemplar you embody these ideals that we we hold to be valuable and whichever direction you want to take that and, and so social media is really a way in which you can do that and the way that that's measured is in how many followers you have how many likes your posts get um, how much reach and influence you have uh, so it's very much just about you, you going onto social media in order to gain a following, which is just people approving of you. People will follow you because they approve of you. Generally, there's, there's other 
reasons for it, but generally it's because they approve of you. They like you re- reinforce or you, you uh, exemplify to them um, the, something that they hold to be valuable. And so you, they want to be associated with you. They want to hear more from what you have to say. And so you can build your honor this way. You build a reputation this way. But in the same way, as we can see in an honor shame culture, that can all go away with a word. One bad post, one bad tweet, one bad whatever, and all of it can be undone literally overnight. You know, we call it cancel culture, where the entire, it seems like the entire world can turn on a person because of one thing that they've said wrong and seek to destroy their lives. This person has gone from being this, this moral exemplar, this, this ideal of everything that we hold to be valuable, to now being the devil himself, or you know, usually it's Hitler, um, is, is typically how this person is portrayed. But it's overnight, their lives can be ruined. Well, even not necessarily that their lives are ruined, but in perception, now that everybody thinks that I'm this terrible person, maybe I am better off dead. And this is what is happening. You know, you hear so many horrific stories about people who will go and kill themselves, who will go and consider suicide because of the, the public opinion has turned on them in such a vicious way that they think that the only way out of it, the only way they can redeem themselves is through death. And so we're seeing, I guess in a way, we're seeing this honor-shame culture playing out, but in such a, well, it's always a facade. This is the thing about honor-shame. It's always a facade. It's never real. And this is the, you know, it's never about you actually being a morally virtuous person. It's just about you being perceived to be that. And it's easier on social media, of course, because you can make yourself whatever you want to be on social media. Um, You can portray yourself. I mean, you can put filters over yourself to make yourself even look different, to look like what the ideal of beauty is. And that's not even the real you. I mean, physically, it's not even the real you, much less who you are as a person. But that's okay because it's a facade. It's just, it's not even about who I am in reality. It's about what people think of me. And having gained that following, then it's really just about, well, can I keep it up? Can I maintain that facade so as to not lose my status, to lose my reputation of, of being this virtuous person. So there is, a, there is a, an element to that. But coming back to the Roman world, as I say, this, this is how we have to understand everything you do. It's, it is so ingrained in their thinking that to say to somebody in the first century, oh, you live in an unashamed culture, they would say, what are you talking about? We just exist. It's like telling a fish that they're in water. What do you, what do you mean? I'm just in my environment. I don't even understand. What are, you, what are you talking about? This is just how they are. This is how, how things work. And so it's into this culture then that Jesus comes. And really what we see in Jesus is him taking this honor-shame culture and just completely turning it on its head. Hey, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening. I hope you're finding this podcast helpful. If you're enjoying it, please consider leaving a five-star review, which is really going to help to spread it further. And you might also enjoy the YouTube channel and the other social media. You can find the link for these in the show notes. And finally, you might also consider supporting the channel financially. You can do that through that same link. But anyway, back to the show. So to understand the world of Jesus, then, you have to understand this context. There's just simply no other way to to properly understand why Jesus does the things that he does and then later on Paul and the disciples what they the reason why they do the things that they do it's it's all within this honor shame culture in fact i'd go so far as to say that even with a basic understanding of honor shame an honor shame culture go back and read the whole new testament with that lens and it will just 
you you will never see it the same way again. It will just come to life in such a new way. In fact, I remember I had a I was teaching a class about this a few years ago, and one of the guys uh, that was in the class he's a, was a, he's a missionary in Japan. He's an Aussie guy, but he's he's do, been doing missionary work over there for a long time now. And he came up to me after this particular lecture, and he said, "This has just changed changed my life. It's just rocked my world, or you know something to that effect." He said, because that's what you're dealing with in, in a place like Japan. It's just such a strong honor-shame culture. And when he recognized that, you know, he could just, for him now, bringing the New Testament into that world is just so different, so much more effective. Because, again, an honor-shame culture like a Japanese culture will have such a stronger sense of what's going on than we would as Westerners. Um, who just don't have this same value. Anyway, I'm digressing a little bit. But this is the idea, this is the world that Jesus is uh, is sort of entering into. Now, so look at some of the interactions then that he has with his opponents, with, with the Pharisees. I mean, listen to the way, for example, that he describes the Pharisees. He says, the teacher of the laws and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you to do. But do not do, not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So here's that idea of it's about perception. You know, they, they'll say to you, this is what it means to be virtuous, but they themselves don't even intend to live that way. He says everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels and their garments long. In other words, they literally dress up as religiously as they possibly can so that when they walk down the street, everyone goes, wow, you're such a religious-looking person. Look at you, this, this great honourable person. He says they love the place of honour at banquets and most important seats in the synagogues. They, have to, they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. And so Jesus' critique of these people is they're just doing what everybody does in an honor-shame culture. They're just doing it as, as teachers of the law. Whatever context you find yourselves in, you're, if you can be seen to be portraying the values of the community, then you're going to be the most honorable person. And in the Jewish community, it happens to be that you're a teacher of Torah because this is what we hold to be the most virtuous and, and to live according to God's law is the highest ideal. And so somebody who's seen to be doing that to such degree must be the most honorable person. Jesus says those, you think that's what the teachers of the law are. No, it's a facade. It's just, it's a costume that they put on. But the real them is actually something quite different indeed. And in fact, as we see in this next example, this is exactly what he does. I think probably one of my favorite examples of this is in Luke 13, 10. So it says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to a woman, you are freed from your disability. Then he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. And not on the Sabbath day. So you've got one of the ways that honor, honor and shame works is that you can gain honor for yourself by actually publicly shaming another person. So one way you could do that is actually to take a person to court. Courts were a public affair. They happened out in the forum. And so you could bring somebody up on spurious charges. And even if they weren't true, if you could even just give the hint 
amongst the people that perhaps maybe this person could be possibly guilty of such a thing, then you've tarnished them to some degree. You've, you've brought them down a few notches and you look like a better person because you're the one who pointed it out. You, I would never do such a terrible thing, but this person over here. Now, again, using modern lingo, we call it virtue signaling. Um, we like to point out everybody else's faults and just to amplify our own virtue, to amplify our own superiority over these people. Because even if it's not about me doing something that actually makes myself to be a better person, if I can bring other people down just by that alone, by standing still, I look better. Well, you know, I might not be perfect, but at least I'm not this person over here. And so therefore, by virtue of that, I look better. And so it's a way that you can do this in public. And for these guys, this is how you do it. You do this by these public displays of shaming. So this head of the synagogue, now who's this head of the synagogue, the, the ruler of the synagogue? He, he's kind of like the mayor of the Jewish community. Um, to be the head of the synagogue, you've got to um, actually pay for the role. You're elected as the head of the synagogue for a year. So you're elected into the role. And then having um, been Grant, been given that role, having achieved that role, you then uh, take care of the synagogue. You fund it, whatever costs might be associated with it. You maybe you know extend it, rebuild it, or you know upgrade it, or you know you pay for whatever is required for the synagogue to function, which is the heartbeat of the Jewish community. Everything in the Jewish community is done in and out of the synagogue. And so you as the head of the synagogue are kind of like the mayor of the community. You are by far the most honorable person because, well, you were elected in there for a start and you're doing things for the synagogue that are a benefit to all of us. And so naturally you get honored by being this particular person. You demonstrate for us or exemplify the values that we hold to hold most dear. And so in this scenario then, Jesus is coming in and he's doing some pretty cool stuff. He's healing people and he's basically drawing attention away, drawing honor away from the head of the synagogue to himself. And people are starting to say, hey, this Jesus guy's really great. And so now indignant, this head of the synagogue is saying, well, you know, that's that's a threat to my honor. And so he sets out to publicly shame Jesus. And you go, well, hang on, that's reading into it a bit. Well, notice what he does. First of all, if he was actually genuinely concerned about Jesus's um, uh, moral status, you know, if if he was genuinely concerned that Jesus working on the Sabbath was jeopardizing Jesus's place within the community, then what he would have done is actually what's required in Deuteronomy, which is basically just to go and give them a warning, to go and actually take them aside and give them a private warning and say, "Hey, that's not cool. Don't do that." You know, maybe. It's not the best behavior. Don't heal on the Sabbath. It doesn't look good. It makes you look a bit dishonorable. That's what you would normally do if you genuinely cared about the person. Now, he doesn't care about Jesus. All he cares about is his honor, which is why he then goes out. And notice he doesn't even speak to Jesus. He doesn't actually even address Jesus at all. He addresses the crowd. He says, hey, guys, um, this is poor form. Um, you know, if you want to get healed on the Sabbath, come on, or if you want to get healed, come on any other day but the Sabbath. So re rebuking Jesus without actually addressing Jesus. Now, Jesus is right there, yet he doesn't even acknowledge Jesus' presence. He just rebukes him to everybody else. Now, in ministry terms, this is kind of like when if you somebody in your church is doing something that you don't agree with and you think that they need to be corrected, rather than 
pulling them aside into a pastoral counseling setting and actually having the guts to confront them and say, hey, look, that's inappropriate behavior. Let's talk about ways that maybe you can mitigate that. Rather than actually counseling them, what you do instead is you get up in the pulpit and you preach a sermon about this particular thing to everybody else and everybody knows exactly who you're talking about. Oh, some people might think that it's okay to do this sort of stuff. Everyone knows who you're talking about and you're just, you're rebuking them by publicly shaming them. You're just trying to cut them down and to publicly embarrass them so that they might hopefully stop the thing that they're doing. So this, that's literally what this guy's doing here. He's just trying to shame Jesus and publicly shame Jesus so that, number one, Jesus might actually you know, retreat, ideally retreat and never come back in shame. Um, but at the very least, for the people to see Jesus or hopefully expose Jesus for the sinful person that he is. You know, it's kind of like these, these open letters that people write on, and put up on social media. You know, they're, um, they, they want to rebuke somebody, so they write this quote-unquote open letter and that just lays out all of these grievances they have with this person for everybody to see, um, except for the person themselves. And it's, again, it's just a way of trying to cut these people down publicly and just shame them. So at the very least, to make you feel better about yourself. Now, maybe there is some potentially some, maybe some good motive of maybe you want this person to maybe stop doing the silly thing. But really the way that you're going about it is really just to shame them. And that's what it all boils down to. But then Jesus flips it around and it says, Then the Lord said to him, You hypocrites. Now, quick side note. I think I have talked about this before. Sorry if I have. But the word hypocrite in the Greek is the word that literally relates to an actor. So the hypocrites in Greek literally means an actor in the play. Now, if you remember from Greek theater that you wear masks. So anyone in the plays wears a mask. And the idea is that you can have a small group of actors, maybe five or six, that can act out dozens of roles just by changing their masks. And so one actor can play three or four different roles in, in a single play. And the mask tells everybody in the crowd what the character is because everyone recognizes the particular face that they're wearing and they go, oh, that's the villain or that's the hero or that's the mother or whatever the character might be that they're playing. And so the idea is that you put it on a facade, you put it on a mask, and it, but the real you is behind the mask. And so Jesus is saying to the, about these guys, you hypocrites, you actors, you are putting on this mask of righteousness, but the reality, what lies behind it is something entirely different. So think about Matthew 23, where he just goes on and on about you hypocrites, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. Just read through all of that and picture this actor, this this sort of and disgraceful character that Jesus is trying to describe. And that's really just how brutal that takedown actually is. So he says, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from his bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, this is so cool. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. See, they tried to shame Jesus in this public display. He's literally just flipped it back on them, put them to shame, and then look how it finishes. It says, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He was honored. He was actually honored even more by virtue of what he was doing. 
So what should have been it was trying to be perceived as some sort of sin and he's like hang on if this is if healing an actual woman is a sin then just remember this next saturday when you go out to water your donkeys that um you're not allowed to do that on the sabbath oh but they might die well how much more important is this woman that she doesn't die like what, what are you even talking about here and so they they were left in shame they lost the contest and they were cut down quite a few pegs here and so then let's just sort of just to finish off let's bring this into the christian message now, what is at the heart of the Christian message? Well, it's the cross. Now, we sing songs about the cross. We wear crosses as jewelry. We, we glorify the cross. It's, for us, it's a beautiful image of God's love and the Savior and all of these things. And it's, it's a wonderful image for us, and it sort of centralizes our faith. But you have to understand what that cross means to a first century person. It is the pinnacle of disgrace. Crucifixion was a punishment exclusively for slaves. It was only ever meant to be for slaves because that's the sort of that only a slave deserves such a, a, a absolutely monstrous punishment. The very idea of crucifixion is that you strip a person completely naked and then you lift them up and you nail them to a piece of wood and then you leave them there to die. And they could take hours, they could take days to to die and the idea is for everybody who's walking past it's saying to the person to a slave oh you think you're better than your station it's for a slave who is a bit uppity or a slave who is a little bit hubristic thinking that they're a little bit better than their station as a slave maybe thinking that they're maybe closer to their master in in their level of status and so crucifixion is there is a way of saying, oh, you want to lift yourself up? Oh, we'll lift you up. We'll, uh, absolutely, we'll lift you up. And then we're going to nail you there. And we're going to leave you there to die. The very idea of it is to inflict on a person the most humiliating possible form of death conceivable to humanity. It is just as horrific as you could possibly imagine anything to be. That's the idea of crucifixion. And, and it's such a vulgar idea that you don't even talk about crucifixion. It's just not something you talk about. The, the Latin word crux, C-R-U-X, crux, that word is, well, in English, it's a four-letter C word. And you go, well, yeah, duh, obviously it's four letters and it starts with a C. No, no, think about those four-letter C words that you would just never say in polite company. Well, maybe you do, I don't know. But you, you certainly wouldn't say them around your mother. You certainly wouldn't say them at church. Um, and it's certainly something I could never say on, on this podcast. Um, these are words that you just don't use. That's what crux was. So amongst elite, the, the good men, the people that embody virtue, would never talk about this stuff. They'd never use that word crux because it's a word that's reserved for low status prostitutes and sailors and just it's, it's guttural humor is is the way that that word gets used and so this is the most disgraceful image you could possibly conceive of and yet look what paul says to the corinthians he says for the message of the cross the crux is foolishness to those who are perishing well of course it is it's the most disgraceful image conceivable he says but this is at the core of our message our very christian faith is centered around this most disgraceful idea the the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who have been saved it is the power of god because we recognize in the cross god coming to the lowest place possible within humanity in order to lift up all of humankind 
but it had to start at the lowest possible position, which was only at the cross. And so this message, again, it's, it's the most disgraceful message, and yet when we recognize the power of God in it, we realize this is life. This is the most incredible thing, and it would take a revelation. It would take the, the revealing power of the Holy Spirit to realize that there's something redeeming and beautiful in crucifixion, which is what God has done. It's the most extraordinary thing. And so Paul says again to these Corinthians, he says, God chose the foolish things of the world. He's sorry, he says before that, he says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the, the, uh, the shameful things to discredit the honorable things. He took the lowliest because only the lowliest could sit there and say, well, this was nothing that I've done. I couldn't have achieved this. This had to have been God because I can tell you from the start that I certainly didn't deserve this. And so again, this is what is at the heart of the Christian message. Well, anyway, I've taken up all of my time for today. These are ideas that we're going to continue to pick up and talk about in the coming, well, as this podcast continues on um we're going to continue this idea on a little bit next week this idea of the good man Um, but we're going to turn our attentions to marriage and so what was the what was the new testament idea of marriage and certainly what was the idea of marriage within the ancient world and, and within the context of this via bonus this good man what is that what does it mean in the context of marriage and divorce and particularly with regard to sex So anyway, that's something to, well, maybe look forward to. We'll see. Um, But we'll start to talk about that next week. But otherwise, have a great week. Thank you for being here. And I'll see you next week.